Well, hello. Welcome to Suds, the weekly podcast that takes the juiciest bits out of the Startup Daily TV show on Ausbiz 2pm every weekday. It's May already, and I'm Simon Thompson, editor of StartupDaily.net, host of the show, and my co-host is here too, Elliot Hastie. Great to be here again with you, Simon. We've done another week and it's actually been one of the few Sydney full five-day working weeks, hasn't it? Oh, and sunny too. That's the other thing I should add. And of course, a pretty hectic one with the RBA and Mike Cannon-Brooks and his AGL play. Gee, that's a pretty bold one, isn't it? That was certainly uh, one way to start the week, wasn't it? He did waste no time becoming an activist shareholder, taking over 11% stake in the energy giant. But this is a reminder that, uh, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to say no to a billionaire because, of course, AGL rejected his offer two months ago when he was offering $8.25 a share. Interestingly, the share price is now well and truly above the figure that Cannon Brooks and his partner at the time, Brookfield, were offering. But he took an 11.3% stake, uh, which emerged late on Monday afternoon, um, and that's to vote against AGL's demerger, which is the, what the company is planning to do and putting into a shareholder vote on June 15. But not only did he just buy the shares, he had a website ready to roll with a slogan, keep it together. He had a video clip ready to roll. And of course, he went to town on this whole thing. So as activist shareholders go, this is a pretty bold move. I think it's roughly $650 million worth of stock he's got there. So it'll be interesting to see how this one plans plays out because, of course, the shareholders need to vote a minimum of 75% in favour of this demerger plan. Yeah, he's been very strong, very out, um, you know, written the whole letter to the board, got, as you said, you know, he's got the whole website going, it's certainly the most organised activist shareholder I think I've ever I've ever seen, Simon. Um, it just sounds like he's got this real strategy, real goal in mind, and he's going for it. Well, as someone who's old enough to remember the days of the 80s corporate raiders and the sort of stuff that was going on back then, this is almost clinical, I have to say, in terms of its execution and the plan is playing out. Although the, the um, what would I call it, the uh, sledging is now going on between, of course, the chairman and CEO of AGL and Cannon Brooks. Mm, there's a fair bit to play out in this whole show. Wouldn't want it any other way. And, of course, once again, extending an open invitation to uh, Mike Cannon Brooks to come on the Startup Daily Show at any time uh, whatsoever. We will make it work. I'm very good at that. Uh, but, Simon, one of the other things we're watching is the response, obviously, over in the U.S., um, to the Supreme Court leakage. And, of course, if you did ma- manage to miss it, there has been a pretty major leak out of the US Supreme Court that it appears that they're ready to overturn the abortion rights ruling under Roe v. Wade. And, of course, demonstrations have already begun. This is pretty mind-blowing because it's such a fundamental issue and such a core part of the American psyche. They made movies about it, Elliot, And I just, the paradox of this country where sort of the right to carry a gun, where sort of 40,000 people die uh, needlessly from sort of whether it's homicide or suicide or accidental discharge, mass murder, all of the crazy things that go on in the US with guns, which of course you can't take away because that's such an inalienable right. The same people sort of generally want to stop women having control over their own reproductive rights. What's fascinating about this, I thought, off the back of it, and protests emerged uh, subsequently. Of course, the court has yet to actually hand down its decision. 
um, who knows who leaked it, is the number of tech companies that are already rallying around. They have policies on this front, and we're talking City, Apple, Yelp, Amazon. Um, they're all stepping up to sort of say, hey, we'll look after you guys, and some of them were doing this well before this started to emerge, to look after women and people who are affected by what could be coming up. It's certainly um, something that's going to, you know, we're going to continue watching it. There's been some really good commentary out there at the moment. Um, and I think my favourite one is no uterus, no opinion. And I reckon that's just good words to live by with that one. Oh, I've got a bunch. Uh, I'm just not going to say anything. But, I mean, we know this is one of the fascinating numbers, I thought, because uh, there was a study that looked in the 1990s at declining crime rates in the US. And one of the reasons why they did go down was not because there was more police or more people in jail. It was quite simply because poorer women had control over their reproduction. And they chose when they had babies, less babies were being born into poverty. As a consequence, there were less children growing up penniless and turning to crime to be able to make an income. I mean, you know, (laughs) these are people, these are people (laughs) who... um, rant about crime and the problems with crime, yet they're, they're prepared to do something that potentially will actually increase crime rates in the US because it's, of one other view that they have. It's really one of those things, isn't it, where they don't want to actually do anything to solve the core problem. They just want to sort of glaze over, you know, the froth on the top um, as it was. But, Simon, we will leave this to the crime podcasters, the crime and legal ones. Good uh, idea, Elliot. We, of course... <laughs> We'll focus on our startups. And we had quite a few VC chats this week, didn't we? We did. It was quite a busy week on that front. And, of course, every fortnight we have Phil Moyle from Main Sequence Ventures on. We have a great piece from him about the hardest conversation early stage investors will have with the founders they've backed. Of course, that's that I'm not going to fund your next round. And so we had him on to talk about that and he had this whole conversation about how you tackle these things. The first thing I thought that was really fascinating was he started talking about how uh, he approaches what he does as an investor going to investments and the two hats that he wears. Here's what he said. Well, I always come to an investment, Simon, from the perspective of an entrepreneur. And I know the difficulties of raising capital. I know how critical it is to actually build out your runway. And so I'm very mindful of my position in this conversation um, and mindful of my relationship with the founder in that sense. Um, So when we invest the capital, there's this sort of shift that happens in my mind about going on a journey with them for a number of years to actually help them grow this fantastic new company. The problem is that that can be in, um, in contradiction to what we need to do as investors. And that is that over time, we need to put our capital into the best companies, the companies that are going to return the best for our investors. And there can come a point in time when those two ideas are at conflict. On, 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 you know, on one side, we are the entrepreneur-friendly person that's committed to the business and just super want it to succeed. And on the other hand, we're an investor looking at it saying, should we put our capital here today? And indeed, can we? And sometimes you want to do, you want to put the capital in on one side and you can't on the other. I think that's very wise words. He's like, you've got these two conflicting 
ideals and you've got to somehow make them work together. As someone that hates an awkward conversation, um, I can very much emphasize with the whole notion of this piece being like, it is awkward because you are have been working with the founder, but then you do also end of the day, you do have to think about the money behind it too. And he's explained a series of reasons. I mean, some of them might be the funders run out of money. You might just be an investment firm that doesn't go to that next stage. You start at early stage and stop there. But I did ask him how do founders prepare for the experience and I liked the advice he had about investors not using this as a stick. And he's got some really great points that he makes here. First of all, it's the responsibility of the investor to... um, to make this an ongoing conversation in the relationship. So I I sit on boards with most of our companies uh, that I've invested in. I spend a lot of time each week with the founders and I try to be really clear about whether I am uh, sitting there with my investor hat on or whether I'm sitting there with my director hat on. And it's important to be very clear about the two uh, parts of that relationship. One of the one of the critical things from my perspective is not to for investors not to use it as a as a stick for the company. It's for me, it's always the perspective of look from my perspective as an investor. This is the problem I think I'm going to have when I go back to our investment committee. If we had these targets hit, then I think we're going to be in a much better position. And actually thinking about it in that way is helpful for the company to actually align its goals. Um, But also, I would hope that they don't only take my word for it. It's an advantage having me in the room to get that insight. But I'm not the only insight that that the company should get and they should go and get other points of view. Finally, I would say make sure it's an ongoing conversation. Um, it can be uh, it can be very damaging if you don't have the conversation, if you're on both sides nervous about having the conversation, and then the day comes where you need the money and otherwise the business is going to run out of runway, and then you have the conversation when it's all at stake and the investor can't put the money in and it can be very damaging for the relationship at that point. One of the other conversations uh, you had as well, which is sort of, you know, you were speaking to that founder, uh, is Matt Fairhurst from Schedulo. Um, he just completed a pretty, well, not recently, I guess, but a pretty massive Series C with SoftBank involving, uh, you know, went from $50 million to $100 million. Uh, and he sort of talked about that process as well and, you know, how the company got involved uh, with Schedulo. Well, this is a great chat. Of course, Matt nowadays is based in the US. It was a Brisbane startup that kicked off uh, a few years ago. And as I mentioned, yes, uh, normally a typical Series C is 50 mil, but they went for 100 mil. And I asked about how all of that came about and SoftBank's involvement in this. Yeah, I think we were fortunate uh, on, on two fronts in that regard. One, we, we actually didn't set out to raise quite that uh, Uh, substantial a sum. I think it was once we started engaging with the process and uh, getting later stage in conversations with uh, likely investors that uh, I think it became aware that there was an appetite to invest even more money in the company and uh, you know there was certainly opportunity and and, uh, an appetite on our side to expand the round uh, beyond you know that 50 million dollar 60 million dollar mark that you mentioned. So I think that was a little bit opportunistic as uh, the round progressed and the process progressed. Um, We were also fortunate with SoftBank, uh, having known 
uh, Nagraj, uh, who now runs a lot of the investment team uh, for SAS there in the United States, uh, Priya Sai Prasad, who's now sitting on our board. Uh, I knew both of them from uh, our prior engagement and prior investment from M12, the venture um, of, of Microsoft, where they had uh, previously invested in Schedule as well, uh, you know, three or four years ago. So. Uh, those relationships, I think, gave me a lot of confidence both in SoftBank and uh, you know the process that they were running, and certainly their confidence in the company over time. I think as well as you know, as he goes on to say as well, there's a whole narrative shift. You know, you you start off at the early stages of a founder. People are buying you; they're buying into your idea. You don't have anything to show for it necessarily, so you've really got to sell that narrative and that story. And we've talked about that on the show before. Uh, but as Matt goes on to say. It's then longer term, as you're getting into these series C's or beyond, it is about what have you accomplished? What have you done? Have you hit your deadlines? Yeah, he he wrote a really cracking behind the curtains explanation of what went on around his Series C. Talked about the key differences in early versus late stage fundraising. He also put together eight tips for a Series C. I thoroughly recommend if you're in that space to go and have a read of this on startupdaily.net. But we did talk about how he put it together and the shift in thinking that was involved as you move to a bigger round and the story you tell of getting there, your long-term mission, and his point was you really need to be across the numbers. Here's him talking about raising in later stages. Yeah, I think in later stage fundraising processes, and you know, I found this definitely in, in our Series C, uh, the conversation has uh, evolved and changed from you know maybe early fundraising experiences where so much of the value proposition and the pitch orients around you as a founder, maybe a, a small portion of the founding team and ultimately your story and your vision and mission. Um, you know, I think once you get into these later stages of investment, that has to be balanced by uh, an ability to talk very directly about growth, about uh, metrics and numbers. And therefore, I think the research that you put into uh, both the story um, of how you got to where you are today and then where you're going over the next few years and ultimately your long-term mission is uh, incredibly important but uh, almost equally important in these later stage processes is your ability to uh, be across the numbers in the business, be across metrics in the business and be really informed. So I think that, that pre-preparation uh, that we put in uh, ahead of the, the process uh, certainly paid off and uh, was incredibly helpful as we moved through the uh, the fundraising process. I think in these later stage f- uh, fundraising processes as well, at least for me, um, it's probably the first time I'd really rallied a, a portion of our team and, and, you know, kind of built a small team in the company around this process specifically to help me uh, on that journey and uh, the company on that journey. In the past, you know, it'd be largely a solo effort or uh, uh, you know, uh, predominantly me at the start and then maybe bringing a few team members in at the end. And I think forming that very deliberate team and having a real uh, deliberate focus uh, uh, through, uh, you know, from start to finish was uh, really valuable and incredibly important. I think that's really good advice from Matt. And, it, you know, it does pay to be uh, across everything. Now, before we get into some of our other founders, one of the last VCs that we talked to as well was Brian Collins from Startup Bootcamp. He's a uh, semi-regular, I guess, on on the show, uh, and they've just raised a new $5 million VC fund to back up early-stage fintechs with a focus on sustainability. Now, Simon, is this a case of the fintechs that are specifically going to finance or look to finance operations in the sustainability world? Are they fintechs that will only you know, 
put out so many carbon emissions. What does it mean? Funny you should ask, because that's exactly what I asked Brian Elliott, and here's what he said. What sustainable fintech is is very simple, and actually it's great to be followed by uh, Zero because they're a good example of this. When we talk about a sustainable future, we tend to talk about the importance that renewable energy plays, and it's an extremely important factor. We talk about things like circular economy, like what Zero was just focused on. Um, but one thing that we don't tend to talk about as much is the role that the financial industry has to play in a sustainable future. And so if you look at the UN Sustainable Development Goals, those 17 goals, it becomes very clear very quickly that eight of them can be either directly or indirectly influenced by the financial industry. If that's the case, if a majority of the sustainable development goals can be influenced by this one industry, do we believe that larger financial institutions are going to be the ones to get us to that more sustainable future? Or do we think that it's going to be smaller, more nimble fintechs that can uh, scale more quickly and grow more quickly? So we took this as a test. We made this a hypothesis. Um, this isn't a guess. We went out and last year we invested utilizing the UN Sustainable Development Goals as our actual investment thesis. So we invested in 10 different companies and that cohort has been the fastest growing cohort in the FinTech cohort we've had so far. Um, that portfolio, just those 10 companies has gone up by 140% um, since December, which has been fantastic. That's really what gave us the uh, confidence to say, this is a major area to focus on. Because I'm sure we've all heard of how quickly things can blow up in FinTech. FinTechs are account for 54 cents of every dollar invested into startups globally. It's the biggest part of any of the startup ecosystems out there. The problem is, is that um, understanding what the next big investment can be difficult. Um, you know, if you think of blockchain back in 2014, you mentioned buy now, pay later, 2017, that's really the time that you wanted to get into those trends. We really believe that sustainable finance and sustainable fintech is going to be the next big thing. And we've got the data to back it up and we've got the hypothesis to kind of prove it. So we're really excited to be officially launching this fund last week and uh, it's open up to investors until May 31st. He's right, though. I do definitely trust the smaller guys to get the UN sustainability goals done a little bit quicker than maybe some of the older shall we say, dinosaurs in the industry. Isn't it a great way of thinking, though? Um, we were talking uh, to Zero Co just before that, and he said, look, that's a great example of what's going on in terms of the sustainability space. Now, they're putting together this new $5 million VC fund. The plan is to back 30 early-stage fintechs. Uh, as he mentioned then, uh, you know, you've got an, if you are an investor and you're interested, you've got until May 31 to get on board. They did secure uh, UpBank's Dom Pim as the corner stone investor. So I think it'll be a really fascinating project. And he, as he talked about the numbers and the success they've had so far in their investments to see where this one goes as they pick those startups involved. It's definitely will be something closely watched because sustainability is never far from our mind as one of our other conversations where we looked at the food sustainability from farmland with Richard Torino from Good and Fugly, which I think if there was another word, I'm sort of getting, what, what's the movie, Simon? Oh, 
The good, the bad, and the ugly. That's oh, right. what I'm getting from it. I'm like, it needs the good, another the bad, word. The there. Fugly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I loved this story of food waste has been one of my passions. As a former restaurant critic, I've always been conscious of it. And there are so many people doing great things in this space. But some of the numbers that Richard talked about, and to paint the picture, good and fugly gives you they're a food delivery company again, except what they're doing is they're using produce that otherwise would have gone to waste and giving it to you at a cheaper price than you know you'd otherwise pay. Um, I think it's a great idea if the reduction in food waste is really, really cool. But one of the, a couple of the numbers absolutely blew me away. About 30% of farmland is is wasted in terms of what it produces stays on the land. It never gets into the supermarkets. And, of course, this is all about the beauty standards that are set for food, you know, that they all have to be the right size and they have to look this way and, you know, the colours and everything have to be right. The consequence is that a quarter of food never leaves the farm because it's not good looking enough. Now, Elliot, that means I would never leave the farm if that was the benchmark <laughs> for that sort of thing. Um, so I asked him about how it all came about and how it works. When I found out um, the stat that 25% of produce doesn't leave the farm because it's not pretty enough, um, kind of blew my mind. And then like, delving into it a bit deeper, uh, 30% of farmland... Um, just goes towards uh, food that gets thrown out, um, wasted or lost. Um, it's kind of what drove me to see if we could have make a little bit of an impact on it. Um, and yeah, and I've been blown away by kind of the demand out there. Lots of people really want to be able to do something good for the planet. Um, their minds are blown just as much as mine was when they hear about the that, that stat of 25% um, never leaving the farm and Part of it, when we started this, which is about 18 months ago, um, the, what kind of surprised us was that our customers really want to do something to help farmers. Um, we, you know, everyone says that, but it was really, uh, it's a real driver to it. Um, and then we got a call probably about two or three months ago um, from a farmer saying he had uh, three patches of nectarine trees uh, damaged uh, by hail um, and couldn't sell it and he was looking around he's kind of desperate um, and then found us online gave us a call um, and we were able to take pretty much the whole thing and put it in our boxes um, and anything we couldn't uh, take or we couldn't um, uh, sell we donated to Oz Harvest which is one of our partners um, but that kind of triggered us or gave us the idea of creating this hotline um, so it's one three triple Zero Fugly, where if a farmer, growers ever uh, find that they can't, um, uh, you know, sell produce because it's been damaged by hail, it's just as delicious. Um, and sometimes even, well, a lot of the time, it's fresher than what you'll get in the supermarkets. Uh, they'll call us up and we'll, we'll help them out. We pay them a fair price as well. When he said that, you know, the stats, I, I was, you know, you sort of hear about it because there's other food startups as well that are like, oh, we get the ugly produce and restaurant, you know, they're targeting restaurants and stuff. I just couldn't believe that it was sort of that high because people are so obsessed with the aesthetics of the food. But now that I'm thinking about my shopping habits, I'm like, yeah, if I go to Woolworths, I expect it to look pretty. If I go to Audi, yeah, I'm paying what I get. Well, you know, I do kind of buy the fuglies, which is one of the things that we talked about. And that's what the customer reaction was like and the psychology of getting food too cheaply, because, of course, it does come at a discount. You know, it, 
up until a few months ago, we're about on par, a little bit less than you get in the supermarket. Um, and one of the things that now with all the costs going up, um, we're actually cheaper, and it's partly because we uh, all our boxes are seasonal. So we're not you know, taking anything that's out of season. So that has a real big, big impact on, on price. Um, but the other thing that we're a bit different to some of the supermarkets and other places that are selling what they call imperfects is that if you go to some of the supermarkets, you'll see that imperfects are about 40 to 50% cheaper. Um, now, what we've found, and there are studies, um, one particular French study that uh, we talk, we've come across, which talks about how you price these imperfects is really important because if you price them too low, what you're signalling to the people is that it's not as good quality. And so that puts off a huge part of the market, whereas we think that what we call fuglies should be alongside what is called perfect because um, it's exactly the same. And, and like I said, in some cases, it's even um, it's, it's fresher, uh, it, you know, potentially more nutritious. I'm definitely going to reconsider my shopping habits now because maybe I don't need a pretty fruit because at the end of the day, I'm just going to chop it and absolutely mangle it into any dish I'm cooking. Oh, the, I mean, that's the point with most of this stuff. I mean, I'm blitzing up all of my fruit and veg, well, not the fruit actually, but the veg into uh, a bolognese for my kids. So it's like it doesn't need to look gorgeous. I am not a three-hat chef trying to prepare all carrots that look the same. Such a great idea. And as I flipped it around and I put the point to him, if you think about the conversations we have about needing to produce more food to feed the planet, turn that number around, we could increase food production by a third with the stuff that we're currently wasted. Well, there we go. Let's get into some of the ugly food. Now, the important part, I'm sensing a theme here, Simon. The important part is getting it to your door, of course. And as we all know, apartment deliveries can be quite tricky. It's why I order everything to work. People think I just order too much. I don't. I'm just getting nothing at home. And Chanel Costabea from One Key Access has come up with a solution. This is just one of those, why didn't anyone think of this sooner? but it's quite brilliant. The simple thing is that, of course, couriers are standing around trying to drop off stuff. There are so many pain points. You might be staying at home waiting for a parcel to be delivered. It's all a little bit crazy. One key access has come up with a solution. I'm going to let her explain the problem here. Deliveries is something that people have been trying to solve for a long time. If you think about the concept of a delivery, it's designed to happen in the background, and yet today we have all this friction involved in actually being able to receive our deliveries. So One Key Access, our primary goal is to remove all of that friction, and we see access as being the core component of that. So what we do is we um, connect couriers and we register them to our cloud platform and provide them with automated access into apartment buildings and also into parcel lockers. So we see it as a twofold solution, getting the drivers into the building in a tracked and secure way and also having a secure storage location for them to deliver into. Now, my only hesitation with it when sort of listening to her speak about it is, and I often say it because I'm very bad with keys as well, I would love to be able to access my apartment using a tap of you know, my phone and giving that access then to a delivery person or a cleaner or anyone else. So I'm sort of, that's sort of the hesitation I reach when it does get to physical keys. 
Well, this isn't how it's working. It's, uh, I think, a whole new process. I'm going to be fascinated. It's rolled out in Melbourne. Uh, they're in their first apartment. But they've also already signed on some major clients in terms of Australia Post, Aramex, Careers Please, DHL. They've just raised a million dollars in pre-seed funding for this project. And, of course, LaunchVic's Alice Anderson Fund, which backs female founders, has come in as part of this round. So it's good to see that, which Susan Oliver is running, getting off the ground and backing some companies. Um, but do you know that people steal the food deliveries in the middle of the night? So you get up in the morning, I don't know, you're after milk and a box of cornflakes or whatever, and it's gone. Is this... Oh, absolutely. I saw Alan Jones, the good one, uh, tweeted about it happening to him. I used to live uh, in a block in Erskineville and people would regularly have HelloFresh boxes nicked from the waiting area. Um, I've, I don't actually think I've ever had one nicked, but... It happens. It happens to all my friends in apartment blocks. It's just, eh. The problem is the people that are nicking it, I mean, with a HelloFresh, they know they've got to cook it, right? (laughs) But it kind of does my, I mean, it's been a while since I've lived in an apartment, I admit, but it does my head in the thought that your neighbours are stealing from you. Well, I don't think it's the neighbours because a a delivery driver would have to leave it outside my front door because he couldn't get into the first zone. But it's also why, you know, whenever I, in one of the old apartment blocks I lived at, if I ever saw a delivery for someone on my level, I would grab it and take it up to them. So, so you're that a it good didn't egg. get nicked. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously I'd look into it and be like, oh, I don't want that. Yeah, you just, know, throw it away. So, <laughs> just, just take a couple of strawberries out of the container. Look, I did ask her about the plans for the cash, which is where she revealed that this was an actual problem. In this million dollars will get us off the ground to help us to um, hire some more staff, um, help us further develop our, our product and our platform. I think from, from our perspective, we're already live in our first building. We're looking at growing that um, significantly over the year. Um, we're very focused on executing deliveries really seamlessly for the buildings that we enter, bringing on more delivery providers. We've got um, the major parcel delivery providers onto our platform now. We're looking at extending that out to food deliveries, which we know is a big problem. I mean, everyone's got some food deliveries being delivered in the middle of the night and unfortunately not there when they wake up. Um, So looking to extend our product offering, also looking to extend um, the number of integrations that we have. We integrate into building access systems and also parcel lockers, and we've already got a number of partnerships um, with with various access control companies and parcel locker companies. And so very much focus on growing that network within one key access and really being that connector across the globe um, for smart deliveries. I certainly hope it succeeds. There's going to be lots of millennials or anyone in apartment buildings that will definitely be using the services in the future. But, Simon, that does bring us to the end of another week. Absolutely, Elliot. Thanks for another great week. I suppose we'll have to do five days again next week, won't we? Uh, I don't know. I think this four-day week was... I mean, I had Monday off, so I think the four-day week is really working for me, and I might just stick to that. All right, then. Well, we'll see you (laughs) on the show at uh, 2 p.m. on Monday, of course. Don't forget to go to the website, startupdaily.net. Have a great weekend. Go the Swans, uh, playing at home again this weekend. Looking forward to seeing them in action. Elliot, you have a great weekend too. Bye for now. Bye for now.